When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of sexual violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. In modern-day investigations, fingerprints are some of the most valuable clues in identifying a suspect. Automated fingerprint identification systems have reduced the time it takes to compare prints from hundreds of hours to a matter of minutes. Before the revolutionary introduction of automated analysis, Investigators had to manually compare prints from a crime scene in order to exclude or implicate suspects in the commission of a crime. In May 1948, an unthinkable murder led to one of the most extensive mass fingerprinting operations in UK history. It solidified fingerprint comparison as one of the most accurate means of identification in criminal investigations. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 52 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. June Ann Devaney was one month shy of turning four years old when her mother Emily gave birth to June's sister Margaret on May 5th, 1948. Emily and Albert Devaney also had two sons, six-year-old Albert Jr. and two-year-old Joseph. As Emily was in labour, June became unwell, so she was treated at the same hospital her mother attended, Queen's Park Hospital in Blackburn. Three-year-old June had pneumonia, an acute lung infection that usually develops after a respiratory illness. Because she was still under the age of four, June was placed on the infant's ward. Two walls of the ward were lined with high-sided cot beds and the north end led to a bathroom on the left. On the right was an enclosed room with three bay windows that had been used as an office. As foundry worker Albert and his wife Emily adjusted to having another baby in the home, June was under the care of the nurses at Queen's Park Hospital. June was the eldest child on the baby's ward, and her inquisitive personality and chattiness charmed the medical staff. On May 14th, after almost two weeks, doctors decided that June could be discharged the following morning. Her condition had improved significantly, 
and she was eager to get home to her parents and siblings. Registered nurse Gwendolyn Humphreys arrived on duty at the hospital around 11.30pm on the night of May 14th. She was responsible for the care of the patients on the baby's ward and the slightly older patients on the toddler ward, which was down a corridor opposite the kitchen. The kitchen leads to a corridor. Along the same wall to the right are the doors to a linen room and a bathroom. The doors opposite open out onto a porch, and a children's playground is beyond that. At the north end of that corridor is the entrance to the baby's ward, Ward CH3. After the handover from the nurse she had relieved, Nurse Gwendolyn Humphreys went to each ward to check on the children. She found them all to be sleeping soundly, so she seized the chance to get a head start, readying their breakfasts in the kitchen, two doors down the corridor from the baby's ward. It was around midnight, and as the nurse prepared the pots of porridge, Nurse Humphreys heard a baby crying on ward CH3, and immediately went to check on what was wrong. There were only six children on the ward that night, and the nurse discovered that it was one of the younger infants who was unsettled. The young boy was unwell and upset, and it took Nurse Humphreys almost 20 minutes to settle him back to sleep. She carefully lowered him back into his cot. She glanced over at the cot next to his and saw June and Devaney asleep, undisturbed by the noise. By this time it was close to 12.30am, and the nurse thought she could hear a girl's voice coming from the porch. After stepping out of the kitchen, Nurse Humphreys looked through the door into the darkness, but could not see anything. Maybe she had been mistaken. She had barely returned to her work preparing breakfast when a child on the toddler's ward started crying, so she brought the little girl to the kitchen to give her a drink and something to eat before laying her back down to sleep. It was shortly after 1am when the nurse went back into the baby's ward to look in on the children once more. This time there was something wrong. Nurse Humphreys noticed that June Devaney was not in her cot, which was the third from the entrance on the porch side of the ward. The nurse began looking into the bathroom and old office for June, but she could not find her. It was then she realised that one of the bay windows was open. As Nurse Humphreys rushed back to the cot, on the floor beneath it she noticed a large bottle. Known as a Winchester bottle, it contained sterile water and was kept on a trolley at the far end of the ward by the entrance to the office. The nurse also saw the imprints of feet on the highly polished wooden floor. They were much too large to belong to a child. Back in the corridor, she found that the porch door was ajar. The catch on the brass doorknob did not always work, but as the weather was calm that night, it would not have blown open. Aware something was wrong, Nurse Humphreys alerted other hospital staff, and after failing to find June in any of the wards, they called Blackburn Police sometime before 2am. Inspector Wilson and PC Parkinson were tasked with visiting June's parents at their home on Princess Street. Albert Devaney could not sit by and immediately asked to join the search for his daughter. For over an hour, they searched through the wards of the hospital and the 70-acre grounds until, at approximately 3.15am, they spotted something in the open grassy area by the boundary wall around 300 feet from the hospital building. 
as they got closer, it was clear they had found June. The scene was horrifying. She was on the damp and muddy grass lying face down. Her nightdress had been pulled up to her abdomen indicating a sexual assault. There were obvious injuries to her head and face. The hospital was immediately placed into lockdown. Chief Constable Looms from Blackburn Police arrived at the scene along with Dr Gilbert Bailey, a police surgeon. They were supported by officers from the Lancashire Police Force to preserve the scene and collect evidence. On the ward, investigators found a number of footprints around June's cot. They dusted the scene for prints on windows, doors and the Winchester bottle that was found beneath the cot. Nurse Humphreys told the police that the bottle was usually kept on a trolley at the end of the ward and was not by June's cot when she checked on the children shortly after midnight. All members of staff and patients were interviewed, and no one was allowed to enter or leave the hospital. Once prints were lifted from the bottle, they were compared to everyone who had access to the building. A team of 12 Lancashire detectives fanned out across the area to speak with people who lived close to the hospital. There was no sign of June's killer, and a decision was made to contact Scotland Yard within the first few hours. Chief Inspector John Capstick was already investigating the murder of another child less than 20 miles from Blackburn in Farnworth. 11-year-old Jack Quentin Smith and his 9-year-old friend David Lee were playing together along a railway embankment when they were approached by a man they did not know. The man told them he worked for the railway company and they had to come with him as they had lit a small fire. The young boys did as they were told and followed the stranger. A short distance away, he forced them to lie down before launching a brutal knife attack that claimed the life of Jack Quentin Smith. David Lee had also been stabbed numerous times, but managed to make it back to his home before being taken to the hospital for life-saving treatment. Fearing the same man had struck again in Blackburn, Chief Inspector John Capstick was sent to the hospital to assist in the investigation. To exclude everyone who had possibly touched the Winchester bottle for innocent reasons, detectives went through the hospital's records. They spoke with and took fingerprints from people who had access towards CH3 in the previous two years. Almost 650 staff members, patients, ex-patients and tradespeople were fingerprinted. None matched, so detectives felt confident the print had come from the killer. When news of the murder broke, people speculated that the person responsible was someone who struck around the new moon. Those more familiar with the hospital believed that as the killer had gone undetected, they must have spent some time inside the building. One nurse told a reporter for the Telegraph newspaper that it was rather a maze of buildings in which even members of staff are apt to find themselves getting lost. A post-mortem examination was conducted the following afternoon by Dr. Gilbert Bailey. June's body was bruised and bloodied, but also mud-stained. Her nightdress was soaked from the wet grass. The poor child had extensive bruising on her head and scalp, and several facial injuries. There was also a mark on her neck that indicated she had been gripped by the throat. Her inner and upper thighs were bruised and bloodstained, 
evidence of a violent sexual attack that caused extensive internal injuries. A bite mark was noted on her buttocks, and small puncture wounds on her ankles were consistent with someone digging their fingernails into the skin as they held her by the ankles. This fit with the theory that the little girl had been swung by her feet against the stone wall, resulting in skull fractures. Scenes of crime officers had collected hair and blood samples from the scene beside where June's body was found. June Ann Devaney's cause of death was listed as shock and hemorrhage. Around 100 officers were assigned to the investigation. The Blackburn police were assisted not only by the Lancashire Constabulary, but also by two Scotland Yard investigators, Inspector Dawes and Chief Inspector Capstick. This was the first time two members of Scotland Yard had been engaged in a case outside the capital. Within the first few hours of the investigation, Forensic analysts were tasked with examining fibres found near the window in the small office room, fibres an adult male pubic hairs taken during the post-mortem, and fibres found in the footprints. The most detailed fingerprint impressions were from the thumb and forefinger of the suspect's left hand, so impression cards were developed to expedite the comparison process. Public interest in the case was high, as it seemed unthinkable that a child could be snatched from the safety of a hospital ward and killed in such a ruthless way. The Blackburn police appealed for anyone who saw a car in the vicinity of the hospital at around 1am that morning to inform them immediately. They also asked anyone with information concerning strangers who had been staying in lodgings, hotels or boarding houses to come forward. Queen's Park Hospital was finally allowed to reopen on May 17th, meaning concerned parents and family members could visit patients on the wards. Historically known as an industrial town with a prominence in cotton and textiles, Blackburn is situated in Lancashire, with a population of around 110,000 people in 1948. Based in a valley by the moors, the land rises and falls around the features of the area. On a high point on the east side of the town sat Queen's Park Hospital, a multidisciplinary medical centre with a wide range of units to care for people at every stage in their life. The hospital grounds span 70 acres. A stone wall separated it from Queen's Park and a disused quarry known locally as the Delft. In the aftermath of June Devaney's murder, Parents in the area were too afraid to let their children go to school as they had to walk through the park. They threatened a school strike because of fears for their children, who had to pass the crime scene every day while walking from Winnie Heights Estate. One concerned mother said, We asked for a special bus for the children months ago because a mile across the fields in wet weather is too much for them. Now we demand it for the safety of our young ones. The education officer refuses it because the distance to school is less than two miles. A bus is the only safe method. If we don't get one soon, we may decide not to send our children to school at all. Subsequently, an ex-serviceman was hired by the education department to escort the children on their journey. Almost every man who lived or worked within the proximity of the hospital was questioned and asked to account for their whereabouts on the night of the murder. Investigators even went to nearby ports and harbours in the north of England and at Fleetwood and Preston docks. They postulated that sailors sometimes walked barefoot on slippery surfaces 
and the killer had entered the ward with bare or stockinged feet. That said, perhaps the perpetrator took off his shoes to not make a noise and alert the nurses. Thereafter, the police released a description of a man they wanted to question. A number of men had been seen loitering near the nurses' housing on the hospital grounds, harassing them after their shifts. Among them, one individual had inquired about accommodation in a local guest house. He was described as being between 25 and 30, 5 feet 8 inches tall with a clean-shaven and thin face. His brown hair was brushed back, revealing a scar beneath his left eye. He was well-spoken. It was considered he could be a merchant, ex-forces or seaman, as he had mentioned travels in Holland and Italy. He was wearing a distinctive thigh-length brown sports jacket and grey trousers. Before the inquest into June's death was opened, the police highlighted that the man was not a suspect, but he was wanted for questioning to exclude him from the inquiry. As the investigation was ongoing, the inquest was opened and adjourned quickly. The coroner spoke directly to Albert Devaney, June's father, and said, This is a court which has always seen tragedy, but I think this is a case unprecedented in its history. I want to express to you and your family my deepest sympathy, and I am certain you will wish the authorities well in their investigations. By the third day of the search for the killer, a senior police official made another appeal, asking for the public's assistance. He said, We feel that more people know something of the events leading up to the murder on the night of the 14th than have come forward. Detectives also asked local taxi drivers if they had transported anyone to the Queen's Park area on the night of the murder. Bernard John Regan remembered taking two separate journeys in that direction. Regan had just dropped off a passenger on Queen's Road shortly before midnight and began driving back to the taxi rank. As he turned to go under the bridge at the bottom of Lower Audley Street, a man walked out on the right-hand side and flagged him down. This individual asked to go to Queen's Park. Assuming he was visiting a sick relative, the taxi driver asked what ward his passenger wanted to be taken to. The man simply said, Queen's Park. Regan drove the man to the back of the park, close to the Delft. The passenger paid five shillings before exiting the taxi and running into the disused quarry beside the hospital wall. Soon after, the man in the sports jacket was cleared of any involvement in the crime. The taxi driver's statement made it seem even more probable that the killer was someone from the area. Almost two weeks passed without a definitive lead, and a groundbreaking decision was made in an effort to locate the perpetrator. Following a meeting between the coordinating police forces and senior investigators, a decision was made to conduct house-to-house fingerprinting of every male over the age of 16 in Blackburn and the surrounding villages. Utilising the public interest in the case, the police assured everyone that the prints would not be held after the crime was solved and would not be compared to fingerprints from any other case. Inspector Dawes from Scotland Yard stated, We want impressions of the left forefinger and thumb only. We are asking for the cooperation of the public, and we feel sure they will be anxious to assist us in tracing the man responsible. The first to volunteer was Blackburn's Mayor Alderman Sugden. 
He encouraged all of the men in the town to cooperate and said, If I am asked, I will have no objection to having my fingerprints taken. I think it is the least we can do if it will help the police. Using the electoral register, a team of over 20 officers were able to mark houses with males over the age of 16. They began conducting the mass fingerprinting operation on May 24th. Every man who visited Blackburn on the night of the murder was asked to volunteer to have their fingerprints taken. Explaining that the inquiry was being followed in all parts of the country, a police spokesman stated, City police and village constables are taking part in it. One of our first inquiries was about men registered at hotels and lodging houses on the night of May 14th, and now we are fingerprinting every one of them. Many have been interviewed. The work of tracing others is still going on. We are not accusing any of them of anything, but everyone must be eliminated from our inquiries. There was expected to be significant resistance from locals, but the police found the men at each house they called at were more than willing to assist in the investigation. A team of detectives were tasked with making door-to-door inquiries and taking fingerprints from the men in each household to be compared by fingerprint analysts. Over a quarter of the men in Blackburn had their left hand fingerprinted by the end of May. By the second week of June, over 20,000 men in Blackburn had volunteered their prints, but just a few days later, fear swept through the nation as a man was found reaching into a child's cot at St John's Hospital in Andover. In the late evening of June 20th, Nurse Dixon, who worked in St. John's Hospital, was drawn to the children's ward. She said, I heard a child coughing at 11.30pm and I went into the ward and switched on the light. In the far corner, a man was bending over the cot where an 18-month-old was sleeping. He had one arm inside the cot and seemed to be pulling back the covers. As soon as he saw me, he crouched down behind it. I shouted, what are you doing there? And the man came out saying, I am sorry. I seem to have come to the wrong place. Then he walked towards me. I was very frightened, but I tried to hide it. I said, if you are looking for a bed, I know where you can get one. I walked him down the corridor and he said, I'm awfully sorry, you know. Then I unlocked the front door thinking I could call for help, but the man bolted. Investigators rushed to St John's Hospital to collect evidence, before comparing it with the evidence gathered from Blackburn. By the end of the month, the fingerprints, which now amounted to more than 45,000, were sent worldwide with the idea that the suspect could have been in the forces. With very few men left to fingerprint according to the register, the investigators decided to check the records kept by the local registration officer who issued ration cards. It was then they identified several men who had not been on the registry. Officers visited their homes to obtain fingerprint impressions from them. On August 12th, an analyst was comparing the prints from the scene to those from one of the local men, when he finally found a definitive match. The name on the card was Peter Griffiths. In his early 20s, the former guardsman lived on Burley Street in Blackburn. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Center. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to scentair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at scentair.com. Peter Griffiths was born in 1936. His mother Elizabeth had children from a previous relationship when she married Peter Griffiths Sr. in June 1923. Griffiths Sr. was generally regarded as, quote, queer, on account of false information he supplied to the police regularly, seemingly based on delusions. In fact, Griffiths Sr. had been committed to Presswich Mental Hospital for nine months in 1918, and referred to as a lunatic soldier. This was something his wife was completely unaware of when they married five years later. It was in this facility that Griffiths Sr. was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. If left untreated, schizophrenia can be debilitating, especially in the 1920s when the condition was even more stigmatised and misunderstood than it is today. When Peter Griffiths Jr. was six years old, he sustained a head injury after falling from a moving milk float while playing with his friends. He did not tell his mother at the time, and it wasn't until a week later that she learned what happened from one of Griffiths' friends after he was sent home sick from school. Over the years that followed, Griffiths continued to experience health problems. At the age of eight, he was admitted to Queen's Park Hospital where he spent the next two years being treated for bladder and incontinence issues. Spending so long on the children's ward of the hospital meant that Griffiths was familiar with the layout, and he often played in the disused quarry behind it known as the Delph. After he was discharged, Griffiths became increasingly reclusive, choosing to play alone in his bedroom rather than engage with his peers. Even as a teenager, he isolated himself, playing with his nieces and nephews' toys alone in his room. His half-brother James Joseph Brennan said, 
He used to play with corks and bits of things, just like a child, when he was about 17. Between December 1939 and February 1944, Griffith struggled to remain employed for any length of time, working 12 different jobs. Then aged 18, he enlisted in the Welsh Guards, a regiment of the British Army. For the next four years, Griffith served overseas until he was discharged in 1948. He then returned to live with his parents on Burley Street. In late April 1948, Griffiths' older brother James came to stay with the Griffiths family after he separated from his wife, the mother to his five children. Peter Griffiths was said to have been an attentive uncle who always expressed an interest in his nieces and nephews and in the past willingly helped look after them at their home on the next street. However, when his brother moved in, Griffiths wanted to be alone. He would sleep on the settee instead of sharing a room with James. He seemed unable to hold down a job and would drink to excess. Griffiths had an on-and-off relationship with a local girl called Renee Edge. By 1948, they had been seeing each other intermittently for around six years. On account of his alcohol consumption, Renee ended their courtship in mid-April. Griffiths was devastated, and when he ran into Renee on May 10th, he asked her to reconsider. She refused. Around the same time, his brother's daughter, Pauline, was admitted to Queen's Park Hospital. She was on Ward CH3. Because James Joseph Brennan had a child on the same ward where June Devaney was abducted, he was asked to give his fingerprints during the early stages of the investigation. But his half-brother's name was never mentioned because Peter Griffiths was not on the registry. When his details were found among records from ration carts, Constable Joseph Calvert from Blackburn Borough Police Force travelled to Burley Street and asked Griffiths to voluntarily provide his fingerprints. Griffiths agreed, and the following day after comparing over 46,000 fingerprints, Griffiths's were concluded to be a definitive match to those recovered from the Winchester bottle beneath June Devaney's cot. On the night of Friday, August 13th, 1948, three months after June's murder, Chief Inspector John Capstick, Inspector Barton and Sergeant Mullen made their way to 31 Burley Street to wait for Peter Griffiths to leave for work. He had only completed one shift in his new job when he left to begin his second. Before he made it more than a few steps out of his front door, Griffiths was surrounded by officers. Inspector Capstick informed him he was being arrested for the murder of June Ann Devaney at Queen's Park Hospital. After he was cautioned, on the drive to Blackburn Police Station, Griffiths told the investigators, I have never been in any ward at Queen's Park Hospital, but as a lad I used to play in the Delft there. The officers reminded the suspect that he had been cautioned, but Griffiths asked if it were his fingerprints that led them to arrest him. When he was told that it was, Griffiths said, Well, if they are my fingerprints on the bottle, then I will tell you all about it. Once inside the station, Griffiths relayed a story that was written down by Inspector Capstick. Griffiths explained that it was the Friday before Whitson, a Christian commemoration of Pentecost, and he had left his home at around 6pm to spend a quiet night alone at the Dunhorse pub. 
There he drank around five pints of bitter before heading to Yates's wine lodge. He had two glasses of Guinness and two double rums before returning to the Dun Horse, where he drank six more pints of bitter. He left at closing time and walked down to Jubilee Street off Darwin Street, where he saw a man smoking a cigarette in a small car with wire wheels. Griffiths said he did not recognise the individual, but approached him to ask for matches to light his own cigarette. They chatted for around 15 minutes before the man asked Griffiths if he was going home. Griffiths replied that he was going to walk around to clear his head, but the man told him to get in and that he would give him a lift. Griffiths was driven to the front of Queen's Park Hospital but did not recall where he went. Griffiths stated, I must have got over the railings, but the next thing I remember was being outside the ward where there was some children. I left my shoes outside a door which had a brass knob. I tried the door and it opened to my touch, and I just went in, and I heard a nurse humming and banging things as if she was washing something. So I came out again and waited a few minutes. Then I went back in again and went straight in the ward. I then picked up a biggish bottle off a shelf. I went halfway down the ward with it and then put it down on the floor. I then thought I heard the nurse coming. I turned round sharply, overbalanced and fell against a bed. I remember the child woke up and started to cry and I hushed her. She then opened her eyes and saw me, and the child in the next bed started whimpering. I picked the girl up out of the cot and took her outside by the same door. I carried her in my right arm and she put her arms around my neck and I walked with her down the hospital field. I put her down on the grass. She started crying again and I tried to stop her from crying but she wouldn't do like. She wouldn't stop crying. I just lost my temper then. And you know what happened then. I banged her head against the wall. Griffiths returned to the porch outside the ward to retrieve his shoes before walking back near where he had left June. He walked past her and crossed over the path along the delf into Queen's Park. Griffiths returned home at around 2am and fell asleep on the couch. The following day, he went out for a walk with his former partner, Renee Edge, and read about the murder in the papers. Griffiths told the investigators, It didn't shake me, so I just carried on normally after that. I'm sorry for both parents' sake, and I hope I get what I deserve. With the fingerprint evidence and his own confession used against him, at Blackburn Police Court the following day, Griffiths was charged with the murder of June Ann Devaney. Members of the public had been queuing for over an hour before the hearing opened. A crowd of almost 1,000 people were reported to have been waiting outside. The gallery was quickly packed with over 120 people desperate to catch a glimpse of the man who had viciously killed a three-year-old months prior. When he appeared in court, Griffiths was described as tall and thin with a sallow complexion and wearing a battle dress blouse over blue overalls. He appeared confident and kept brushing his brown hair back from his forehead. Griffiths made no reply to the charge and was remanded to Walton Jail in Liverpool. Peter Griffiths again appeared in court on September 2nd. Despite the rain, 
Crowds of people, primarily local women, gathered outside to try and obtain a coveted seat in the public gallery. At the committal hearing, Edward Roby summarised the prosecution case. He said that June's body was found almost 300 feet from the hospital in the early hours of May 15th. Among her extensive injuries, there were two large bruises on the inner and upper parts of her thighs, which were believed to have been caused by severe thumb pressure. She also had two skull fractures and on four places on the wall next to where she was found, samples of hair and blood were recovered. The prosecutor said there was no doubt that her skull had been fractured when her head was beaten against the wall several times. Injuries on June's ankle suggested that she had been held by her feet and swung against the wall repeatedly. Edward Roby told the court that the only clues the police had at the time were the stockinged footprints, fibres on June's nightdress, and the fingerprints on the Winchester bottle. After taking prints from over 46,000 men in Blackburn, Griffiths was identified as the suspect and arrested before he gave a statement. During a search of Griffiths' home, the police found a pair of grey socks with red threading on the sole and a pawn ticket. The police recovered a suit Griffiths had pawned on May 31st. When it was analysed, experts found blood stains on the sleeves, trouser lining and on the fly of the suit that matched June Devaney's blood group. Roby said... The blood on the inside and outside of the trousers coupled with hair on the body of the child is indicative that the child was raped. Furthermore, officers found the grey socks with red threading corresponded with the impressions made on the ward and matched fibres from the suit with those found at the scene. Several weeks after his arrest... Griffiths was positively identified by the taxi driver who reported that he had dropped a man off at the Delph on the night of the murder. Griffiths was committed for trial. He pleaded not guilty and reserved his defence. The trial began at Lancaster Assizes in Lancaster Castle on October 15, 1948. Hundreds of people again queued in the rain outside the castle walls from before dawn in order to get a seat in the public gallery. A jury of nine men and three women was sworn in before Griffiths pleaded not guilty to murdering three-year-old June Ann Devaney. Prosecutor William Gorman then delivered his opening speech. He took the court through the events of the night leading up to the discovery that June was missing from her cot. Gorman detailed the evidence recovered and how it proved that the defendant had murdered a little girl. Blood matching June's blood type was found on Griffiths's suit. Fibres from that suit were recovered from June's body and on a window sill at the hospital. His feet were the same size as the stockinged impressions found on the wooden floor of the ward. Fibres from socks he owned matched those discovered on foot impressions. And finally, his fingerprints also matched those found on the Winchester bottle. The first witness for the prosecution discussed the photographic evidence from the scene before nurse Gwendolyn Humphreys took the stand. She spoke about the night in question and how she realised June was missing. This was followed by testimony from the officers who, along with June's father, discovered her body in the wet grass on the hospital grounds later that night. The first hint of the defence's strategy came as Dr Gilbert Bailey addressed the court. While being cross-examined by Griffiths' barrister Basil Neald, Dr Bailey was asked if during his 20-year career as a police surgeon, 
he had seen injuries more consistent with the outburst of a lunatic than those in June's case. The doctor replied, I certainly consider the man who did this act must have been in a state of maniacal frenzy. The defence counsel pressed on and asked if Dr Bailey was familiar with schizophrenia or someone with a, quote, split mind. Dr Bailey said that he was, and the barrister asked if that condition included a man who was apparently normal and at another time in a maniacal frenzy. The witness replied, That was my first impression after seeing the body. The man would be, in normal life, quite a normal man, but he would have sudden outbursts of frenzy or mania. Griffiths's counsel went on to highlight the hereditability of schizophrenia, as his client's father had been diagnosed with the condition. Basil Neal asked Dr Bailey if that information reinforced his view that Griffiths had schizophrenia. The doctor said yes. When asked to clarify his statement by Mr Justice Oliver, Dr Bailey said he believed it could have been the act of a maniac or simply of a ferocious man. More prosecution witnesses testified, including Griffiths's love interest, Renee Edge, as did lead investigators, including Scotland Yard Chief Inspector Capstick, who read Griffiths's statement to the court. Before the first day of the trial came to a close, Basil Neal delivered the opening speech for the defence. He stated, You may be quite satisfied that on Saturday the 15th of May, this little child, June Ann Devaney, only three years of age, was snatched from her cot, taken into a field below this hospital, wickedly assaulted and ravished in circumstances which must have caused us all anguish of the mind, and then battered to death against a wall. Upon this bare, perhaps brutal, recounting of those facts, I ask you as ordinary citizens whether each of you does not think this at once, that the man who did those things must have been mad. That is the case which I have to present to you, that this man at that time was mad. Neil asked the jurors to consider if Griffiths was guilty of the act but insane at the time, meaning he could not be sentenced to death. The defence counsel said, I cannot ask for this man's liberty, but I do plead for his life. As evidence of his client's mental state, Neil referred to Griffiths's family history, personal history, the act itself, Griffiths's behaviour after the incident, and medical testimony. He suggested that Griffiths may have gone to the hospital to visit his niece before having an episode of mania that caused him to commit such a brutal crime and that his excessive drinking could have precipitated the mania. The trial was adjourned for the weekend and continued on Monday, October 18th. The first defence witness was Peter Griffiths's mother. Elizabeth testified about her son's and husband's mental state and behaviour. While she did not know her husband had been committed to a psychiatric hospital before they met, she had been told by him that he was a police spy. Members of the police force had earlier told the court that Griffiths's father would regularly come to the station with delusional accusations and confessions. Recalling how her son used to isolate himself and play with children's toys into his late teens, Elizabeth said that she had told him, Don't do that. If people see you, they will think you are mental. Elizabeth explained that Griffiths argued he wasn't doing any harm to anyone. Several members of Griffiths's family testified that he had been childish 
and reclusive for most of his life. Dr. Alistair Robertson Grant described how he believed Griffiths was exhibiting early signs of schizophrenia. He said that 60% of schizophrenia cases are inherited from a parent and that Griffiths' behaviour was indicative of the condition. It was noted that instead of fleeing, Griffiths had remained in Blackburn even after the police had taken his brother's fingerprints and began fingerprinting every man in the town. Dr. Grant did acknowledge that Griffiths' own statements were those of a man who was alert and aware of his actions, but said, I think he knew what he was doing, but I do not think he fully appreciated that he was doing wrong. When the defence finished arguing their case... The prosecution brought rebuttal witnesses, including Dr. Francis Herbert Brisby. Dr. Brisby was the principal medical officer at a prison in Liverpool and had examined Griffiths while he was on remand there. Dr. Brisby told the court, From my observation and examination of the man during the period he has been under my care, I have found no evidence of any disease of the mind which would have prevented him from either knowing what he was doing or that it was wrong. Barrister Basil Neild gave the defence's closing remarks after Dr Brisby's testimony. He argued that while he could not make admissions on his client's behalf, he submitted that the only issue left for the jury to decide was whether Griffiths was sane or insane. The defence counsel referred to seven tests that could be applied when making that determination. The first was family history. Griffiths's father was schizophrenic. The second was an injury to the accused. Griffiths had fallen and sustained a head injury at the age of six. The third was health difficulties. Griffiths had spent two years in the hospital June was taken from. The fourth test was whether Griffiths had displayed characteristics consistent with mental illness, solitariness, indifference, childish habits. The fifth was if there was a precipitating cause to make him suddenly insane. He had excessive drinking habits and had recently parted ways with the woman he had once proposed to. The sixth test was whether the mental disorder was evident in the attack. It was extremely violent and frenzied. And the final test Neil implored jurors to consider was whether the accused had made any effort to escape. He had retained an apathetic attitude and remained where he was despite the substantial police effort to find the killer. The defence counsel argued that each test was consistent with Griffiths' insanity and asked the jury to return a verdict of guilty but insane. William Gorman then began his closing speech for the prosecution. He contended that believing a man could not commit such a brutal act unless he were mad was not enough to warrant an insanity verdict. According to the prosecutor, Griffiths knew what he was doing. Referring to tangible evidence that corroborated Griffiths' own statement, Gorman said to the jury, I provided the background. I gave you the hospital with its brass knob on the door, the nurse washing up in the kitchen making noise, the footprints on the ward floor made by a stockinged foot, the body some 280 feet down in the recess of the field at the back of the hospital. I gave you the background. But the real facts of the case are before you, and the real facts of the case are in the statement made by the prisoner. Dr. Alistair Grant had opined that Griffiths lost his sanity after taking June out of the ward not while he was inside the hospital in his socks with a bottle in his hand. 
The doctor believed that it was during an episode of mania that Griffiths had raped and killed June. But the prosecutor told the jury that Griffiths had killed June to silence her cries, so he would not be caught. William Gorman highlighted that Griffiths had been stable enough to enlist in the Welsh Guards and serve for four years. It was also argued the reason why Griffiths had not fled to Blackburn was because he knew that it would cast suspicion upon him. Quote, He stayed in Blackburn in the hope that he would not be found out, and it was only because someone decided to take 46,000 fingerprints in Blackburn that he was found out. If there had been a less thorough combing, he might have escaped, as in my submission he had hoped. In his summary to the jury, Judge Mr Justice Oliver said that from the evidence presented... It was clear that Griffiths was guilty of murder, unless he was at the time insane. Under the law, insanity means that the accused was suffering from a disease of the mind, causing a defect of reason that prevented them from knowing what they were doing or had done was wrong. The jury retired to deliberate at 4.40pm and returned just over 20 minutes later with a verdict. They found Peter Griffiths guilty. When asked if he had anything to say as to why the court should not sentence him to death, Griffiths replied, No. Describing how the crime was committed with the most brutal ferocity, Mr. Justice Oliver addressed the defendant. I entirely agree with the verdict. The sentence of the court upon you is that you be taken from this place to a lawful prison and thence to a place of execution and that there you suffer death by hanging and that your body be afterwards buried within the precincts of the prison in which you shall have been confined before your execution. And may the Lord have mercy on your soul. So where are we now? Peter Griffiths did not appeal his sentence. Before his scheduled execution, he was interviewed by members of Scotland Yard and asked if he was responsible for the murder of Jack Quentin Smith a month prior to June's murder. He denied that he was. Over 100 people had gathered at the prison gates to await the notice that would be pinned up confirming the ultimate sentence had been passed. Among those in attendance was Violet van der Elst, a staunchly anti-death penalty campaigner who often spoke at executions. On this occasion, she would not get her car close enough to the gates to address the crowd. Griffiths was due to be the second person executed since the Home Secretary granted a series of reprieves when a controversial no-hanging clause was proposed to be added to the Criminal Justice Bill. The Home Secretary chose not to interfere with Griffiths's case. Peter Griffiths was executed by Albert Pierpoint at Walton Jail on November 19, 1948. According to Chief Constable Looms of Blackburn Borough Police, the case demonstrated the importance of not dismissing any case no matter how hopeless or impossible a solution seems. He also said it showed the importance of police officers ensuring a scene is not disturbed or contaminated, and the need for experts to analyse evidence immediately. The Chief Constable explained how utilising the public interest in the case to gain their cooperation was vital for the successful conviction. Not only did over 46,000 men volunteer to give their fingerprints, but witnesses including the taxi driver came forward. 
the cooperation between the various police forces allowed for the first ever mass fingerprinting campaign and demonstrated the reliability of fingerprinting as a means of identifying a suspect. Up to two million fingerprints were compared to those on the Winchester bottle from police forces worldwide, and only one matched. Peter Griffiths. As promised, the records of around 46,000 fingerprints were publicly destroyed at a paper mill on November 3rd, when the mayor threw them into a pulping machine that turned them into brown wrapping paper. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.